but I will share one of my pet peeves with you. I cannot stand the phrase, science says. And my issue with this phrase goes way back all the way to high school, so it's not a response to anything recent. You see, the, the term science says, while it is a little bit problematic because science is a system of study and doesn't say anything, scientists say things, that's part of the problem. But at the core of my problem with the phrase science says is it is an appeal to authority meant to shut up an opponent in a debate. In other words, if you have a thought and I disagree with you, I can say science says you're wrong and make you feel like a fool. And that to me is incredibly unhelpful. But we use that term a lot, don't we? Why, when it can be such a an overpowering, unkind term, do we often use the term science says? Well, because we trust science, don't we? God made this world to be an ordered world. And science as a system of study is an amazing tool for studying the world God made. And it can actually help us understand not just the world we live in, but the God who made it. Science is good because it helps us understand and see things truly. You see, we tend to trust the things that are tangible, the things we can see and touch and taste because we are physical beings. And that's very good, but here's where this can be a problem for us as believers. Our faith is spiritual, isn't it? And so while we live in a world made by God, we have a gospel hope as things happen in our lives, as we meet people who disagree with us, our faith can be challenged. A wise woman recently said that our bones tell us a lot, meaning we feel the pain and brokenness of this world. The Ferris family right now is feeling the pain and brokenness of this world. And when we experience that sort of suffering, it becomes easy to question the validity of the gospel. And as Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, they have experienced some suffering, but it is also the case that they have encountered a group of people who have come with clever words and have caused them not only to reflect on their suffering and difficulty in a broken world, but they have convinced them of a false gospel. Praise be to God that when, when he inspired Paul to write this letter, he gave Paul the ability to present a logical, coherent argument to convince the saints in Galatia of their gospel hope. And that, that response goes back to, as we looked last week, at verses six, 15 and 16 in chapter 2, where Paul lays out his thesis statement. Today, we will be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And as you turn, I'll just remind you where we are in our story. Paul has written a letter to a, a group of churches that he visited. He opens the letter with a greeting and then very quickly begins to defend his authority as an apostle. 
And in his defense of his authority as an apostle, he reminds them of his relationship with the Jerusalem leadership. And then, as we looked at last week, he jumps into another spot in history. Just as an example, he tells them about the conflict he had with Peter in Antioch. And I'm, I'm reminding us of this because it's a little bit confusing as we track through Galatians, but Paul used the Jerusalem, or sorry, the Antioch encounter with Peter to make a point. And his point was, yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This thesis statement, this central idea is what Paul will be expounding and applying throughout the rest of his letter to Galatians. And so if we are people who rely on tangible things to be convinced, and the world around us through suffering, pain, and even clever um, discussions with other people might cause us to fall away. Paul gives us very clear, logical examples. He gives his thesis statement, we are justified by faith, not by works of the law, and now he's going to help us. He's going to, our sermon today will be two points for those who are note takers, because I'm just going to follow Paul's argument. He gives an experience argument first. What you have tasted and felt and seen, he will argue from that. And then he will move to the Scripture itself, a more objective sort of argument as we reflect on the Word of God in response, direct response to the Judaizers who had been misleading God's people. That's our order for today. Let's turn our attentions directly to the Word of God now. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, 
the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. It is true, and it is given in love. Let's bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ, our incomparable Savior. Amen. I've talked to several people in the last couple of weeks who either are about to go on a cruise or just came back from a cruise. And a cruise sounds like a lot of fun. Good food, good friends. But here's the thing that kind of concerns me. You can tell me what it means to be on a boat for two weeks with the same people far from land, but I don't really get it. You can tell me all about it, but until I get on a boat and feel the motion sickness and how the medicine may or may not help me, until I feel the sea legs as my legs go wobbly and I can't figure out how to walk, until I have an argument with somebody and now we're stuck on a boat, (laughs) I cannot wrap my mind around how difficult it could be or how wonderful it could be. My aunt actually has lifelong friends she met on a cruise. You can tell me all about it. But the reality is experience is the best teacher. And so if I want to understand what a cruise really is like, I need to go on a cruise. That's not a promise yet, Jenna. One day, someday. Right? And so God, knowing this reality as peop- as he- because he made us, people in flesh who live in a reality-driven world, speaks to us, convincing us of the gospel of grace through our experience. Our text today, Paul starts with what seems like a very harsh statement. As we read this, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? My tendency is to be like, whoa, Paul, pull back a little bit, buddy. You popped the clutch a little. That's a little harsh. But let's understand what Paul's doing. This is actually a bit of a common convention in a letter of rebuke So Paul is, yes, rebuking his Galatian Christians, this congregation whom he loves. He is rebuking them in the strongest possible language, calling them foolish. But in that historical moment, the way letters were written, he has not crossed that line. If I were to call you all foolish, I have a feeling I would have crossed a line. (laughs) It would be hard for you to hear me well. But if we can step back 2,000 years... Paul is diving into the core of his argument, and so he is starting off with the strongest language he can in a way that they would understand that, okay, he's serious now. That's what's happening here. He is not frivolously insulting his people. And then he says, who has bewitched you? Now, some of us might hear that and wonder, does Paul think that there's a sorcerer who has manipulated God's people? And there have been people who have made that argument, but as we understand that Paul is writing in a style that was common, just like we understand when we watch a fantasy movie versus a documentary, Paul is writing a letter, and when he says, who has bewitched you, this is a judgment that goes two directions. One, he's effectively saying, you Galatian Christians whom I have cared for and ministered to, you've gone a little crazy. 
there's something about you accepting this false teaching that goes beyond the pale. At the same time, the idea of bringing in witchcraft terminology is a judgment on the teachers, the Judaizers who had followed Paul and misled the people. He's effectively saying the people who came and presented a false gospel are evil. Their gospel corrupts the good news, and therefore, in another place, he might, we might call them antichrists. They are undoing the very hope we have as God, God's people who accept the gospel by faith. It's a powerful opening sentence into this salvo that he's entering into. And then he says, it was before your eyes. Now, let's not be confused. The, the Galatian Christians did not see what happened in Jerusalem in Jesus' crucifixion. They were not there. What's going on is Paul is explaining that they have heard the gospel. They have heard that historical story that Jesus Christ, who did physically walk in this world, who did physically suffer at the hands of the Romans, who did physically die on the cross, and who did physically rise from the dead. Those are real historical things, and it has been described and preached in such a clear way to the Galatian Christians that they can't help but confess that it is true. Paul is saying, you understand it. You know it, you weren't confused about the reality of the gospel when I preached it to you. But it seems that the Judaizers have come and tried to undo that. There were groups at that point in history who, had, who believed that maybe possibly Jesus just appeared to have died on the cross. Brothers and sisters, people were not stupid back then. They knew death in many ways better than we do. And so, yes, Jesus did die on the cross. There was no mistaking it. And yes, Jesus did come back from the dead. There was no mistaking it. But the gospel had been preached to the Galatian Christians in such a way that they had embraced it wholeheartedly with understanding and joy. And so when Paul says, you saw as if with your own eyes, he's, he's reminding them that they in their very experience had heard that which is true. And then he pushes it further. He says in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit? Now that sentence there is a one-time thing. Reception of the Spirit is meant to be understood as saving faith. Did you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation? Yes, you did. You began there. That was the beginning of your, mo your moment of salvation and your new life that comes after, he is telling them, yes, you are saved. And right now there is a false teaching that is assaulting your faith, and that is a dangerous place to be standing. And so he continues saying, are you so foolish? You began by the Spirit. You heard by faith. You embraced the gospel of grace. Are you now hoping to perfect yourself, to continue in your faith, by works. I have to be honest, throughout my entire life, from my childhood till today, this has been a struggle for me. I have believed that God loved me and sent Jesus to die on the cross, and that, that I will be in heaven with Jesus someday. And then I try to be good so that God will love me. That 
is unworthy of the gospel. My good works, my actions are a response to the fact that I am already loved by God. Our life of faith that we live today and tomorrow and the next day is one that we live in faith. We need not fall back to works to act as if we were saved and now we must be good to maintain our salvation. Paul undoes any notion that the gospel is either about doing works to get in or doing works to stay in. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are in the family of God, adopted as a son or daughter, beloved, blood-bought lamb of the Lord. And when you sin today, and you will, God will not love you less. You will not be less saved. Your salvation is not in peril because we live by faith. We grow in grace by faith because the Holy Spirit hasn't dwelt us. We began with the Spirit and we continue in the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit works in your heart and mind through the good things God has given us like worship, like studying God's word, like fellowship, like prayer. Those are all wonderful things that God has given us that he works through by the Spirit, not by works of the law. So God will not love you more for attending regular worship regularly, and he not, will not love you less if you fail. But you will feel the reality of that as you grow in your faith or stall out a little bit. And he continues then in verse 4, did you suffer so many things? Now, the word here, suffer, could really be translated, and I, I would actually encourage, it means experience. The Galatian Christians didn't likely at this stage in history suffer persecution. That came a little bit later in history, and it came with a vengeance. But they did experience a lot, didn't they? They came to faith. They heard the gospel. They, they grew as a fellowship. They experienced the goodness and hope it is to be saved by our loving Lord. What a glorious thing. They saw restoration in a broken world all around them. Paul is telling them, do not fail to recount the good things God has done. When, we, when our sense of stability, when our sense of comfort and salvation is assaulted, whether by the brokenness and suffering of this world or even by the clever diatribe of some friend of ours who gets on Facebook and challenges our faith. Whatever cause of difficulty, Paul says, the first thing you can do is look back at how God has worked in your life. God has done amazing things. You are not the same person you were when you first met Jesus. He has grown you. The world around us is, in fact, I know it's hard to believe, getting better. God is about restoring a broken world. We could go through all the stats. I'm not going to do that this morning, but the world is truly getting better little by little as the gospel goes forward, as people are restored to a right relationship with God and act in accordance with the, their identity as beloved children of God. This world is getting better. God is progressively restoring all that was broken until one day, someday, Jesus comes back and he will finish that work, and it will be a glorious day. And yes, we look forward to that. But did you experience so much? Are you failing to look back and see God's work? Brothers and sisters, when you struggle, 
recount God's work in your life. It recount your experience of God's grace. Verse 5 tells us that they even experienced miracles. And yes, the book of Acts chapter 2 talks about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended and empowered the church in a profound and unique way so that they could speak the languages of people who had not heard the good news and go out so that every tribe, tongue, and nation might know the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. There were miracles and healings, but there are also the everyday mundane kinds of miracles. The I woke up today kinds of miracles. The I found a way to forgive, or in my case, maybe be forgiven kinds of miracles. Those daily mundane, God is at work growing me despite my rebellious nature kinds of miracles. Brothers and sisters, don't fail to recount God's miraculous work in your life and in the life around us. We as a congregation must tell testimonies of God's grace. Next week you'll hear testimonies of how God worked at RYM among the high school students. Don't lose sight of the fact that it is a glorious thing when God draws a teenager closer to his heart. Celebrate that. That is a thing worthy of praise, but also something that can comfort your heart and mine. And so Joel 2.28 is likely something that was on Paul's mind when he talks about the, the Spirit being poured out. Joel 2.28 says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The Lord has poured out his spirit in your life, in this church, so that we can be a blessing to one another and to the community around us and even around the world. God is good. And so when we feel assaulted by the sorrows and brokenness of this world, when we feel tempted to, to, to back off of our gospel hope and, and replace trust with works, recount the grace of God in your life. Reflect on how he has poured out his spirit. It will empower and encourage you. Everyone knows a lot of things. Have you ever thought about this? Everyone knows that Napoleon was short. When in fact, he was five foot six, which at that time in history for a Frenchman was above average. Everyone knows that if you throw a penny off of a skyscraper, it can kill somebody. When in fact, the terminal velocity of a penny is about 30 miles to 50 miles per hour, enough to give you an ouchie, certainly not enough to kill you. Everybody knows that black holes are giant empty voids that suck everything into them. When in fact, black holes are actually incredibly dense objects that have immense gravitational force that sucks up even light. Everybody knows that the proportion of the brain, or that we only use 10% of our brain. When in, and there's some, some interesting sci-fi movies with that premise. When in fact, the proportion of the brain firing at any one time is task dependent, but ultimately, every region of the brain is used on any given day. And everybody knows that Vikings put horns on their helmets. When in fact, 
a costume designer for a 19th century Wagner opera decided to use that just for display. Leave it to a Nazi opera writer to ruin Vikings for us. Right. There are lots of things that everybody knows, but not everybody really knows. They require a little bit more investigation, don't they? Well, one of the things that everybody knows is that Abraham is the foundation, or the first person, you might say, to express faith in God. The Abrahamic religions, that is, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all look back to Abraham as the first, the prototypical expression of trusting God. And so, we shouldn't be surprised that Paul makes a claim for Abraham as well. But let's understand this. This is the hinge point as he, go, he moves from our experience personally to what the scriptures say and responds to the false teachers. In Judaism at that point in time, it was well attested that Abraham had gone under 10 tests or trials and that by not, which culminated of course in the binding of Isaac, his son, and that his consistency, his lack of falling or failing in these trials was meritorious. So the Jewish rabbinical tradition even says this, that just as myrrh is the most excellent of spices, so Abraham was the chief of all righteous men. In the, in the tradition of the rabbis, Abraham was held up. You kind of had King David and Abraham. We had a couple other big guy, big important Old Testament men, but Abraham is huge in the minds of the rabbis and the Jewish people. And so, the man who had done all the right things, if we read Genesis, we know that there's a degree of absurdity, right, in that claim. The guy was a fool in many ways. He did horrible things, but he was held up. Paul claims him. Righteousness by faith, 430 years before the Mosaic law was even given. He says, take, in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted him, to him as righteousness. That's coming from Genesis 15, 6. This would have been a well-known verse in, in Paul's day among the Jewish leadership. But do you catch that? It was by faith. By faith, by trusting God's promises that Abraham was deemed righteous. Abraham himself was not righteous before God because of his good works. As much as there have been people who have argued that in the past, Abraham belongs to the community of faith, not the community of works. And so Paul then dives into the importance of Abraham in helping us understand our faith because everyone knows Abraham was loved by God because he was so good. Paul says, no, let's look more closely. Genesis 15, 6 says he was, uh, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes further and he says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, continuing in verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This should blow our minds. Abraham, this guy just wandering around, and God calls him in Genesis 12 and says to him, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make 
of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor whoever, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Hear this and hear this well. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, the rabbinical tradition, these Judaizers who had followed Paul around and corrupted the gospel, they were saying that the faith of, in God, the, the hope of salvation rests in your lineage, being in the right family. They were saying things like only the true Jews could be saved. And so if you want to be a, a, a follower of Christ, you must first become a true Jew. And Paul says, no, the Scripture foreseeing, because God knows all, and when God delivered the scripture to Abram, said, you're going to be a blessing to all, not to just the Jewish lineage, to the ethne, to, to the nations, to the Gentiles, to those who are not of the descent of Abraham. We move from seed to ethne in Paul's expression of the gospel. The gospel has always been about faith and always been about drawing those who were far from God and making them near to God. And so Paul says, look to the scriptures, investigate them. Faith has always been the driving force. Abraham is connected to God and we are connected to Abraham not because he was good, but because he had faith. And he pushes even further. He says that we know, everybody knows Verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under what? A curse. How could it be that the rules that God has laid out so that we might obey him and know how to live a good life, how could that possibly be a curse? Isn't that a good thing? I mean, I want my children to obey me so that they don't destroy themselves, and they will if they don't listen. Rules are good. How is it that we would say that the law of God is a curse? Catch again. Read carefully. Reflect on the word of God. This is how we answer those false teachers. He says, those who rely on works of the law, not those who obey the works of the law, those who rely on the works of the law. If I believe that I can be good enough to, to make God like me, if I can be good enough to make God love me, if I can be so good that God can't help but let me into his heaven, I have frighteningly misunderstood and underestimated the holiness of the creator God. And then he goes further. It's not just that you're cursed if you rely on it. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. This is coming out of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. The idea of abiding means to live, to dwell. It's not just that I know God's law and do it. To abide by God's law means, would mean that I literally wake up breathing it. It's on my mind at all times. I cannot help but obey it because it is so seeped into my very being. Does that describe you? It certainly doesn't describe me because I have a broken nature. I am rebellious to the core. And so, no, I do not abide by the law. And so when I fail to do it all, and I rely on the law, I fail to, to accomplish the very thing I've set forth as the standard, 
it becomes a curse. It becomes a judgment on my failures. And so he continues to push us. In verse 10, he says, all the things written in the book of law and do them. It's not just an affection for God's law. It's doing every last thing. Well, of course none of us can do that. And so it is evident that no one, he, he concludes the idea with, it is evident then, I've made my point. Nobody is justified by, before God by the law. So the obvious conclusion is, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he takes us to what may be one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. And that's a dangerous thing to say, I know. But he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, Jesus didn't just die a martyr's death. He's not just some hero. When Jesus went and died on the cross, he took on the curse. That comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Cursed is anybody who is hung on a tree. Jesus, and that curse is not just the, the shame that we might imagine somebody would experience for being crucified. That would be shameful, to be termed an enemy of the government, to be, to be crucified in such a public and horrific way. Of course, there's shame wrapped up in that, but the shame that Jesus embraced when he went to the cross, the curse that he received was judgment, wrath of the holy God, the one true, perfect man, Jesus Christ, the one who had never deserved any kind of suffering, the one who had, should never have died, became the curse, received the judgment that you and I deserve. This is that great exchange. This is Jesus standing in the gap in my place and in your place. We're connected to that, not because of our good works, but by faith. And Jesus became the one thing that we desperately needed him. In a sense, he became me. In a sense, he became you. He stood in the place that we have earned for the joy set before him. And what is that joy? It's you. It's me. He stood in our place on the cross, taking on that curse because he loves us. And in doing so, you and I receive his perfection. You and I receive his righteousness. It is stuck to you. It is who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, bonding you to Christ in a way that no works of the law could ever do. And so our Savior became a curse for us. And we finish this text. He says some, with, uh, in verse 14, two so that's, two purpose statements for Jesus becoming the curse. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It was never about lineage. We are not saved because our parents are Christians. We're not saved because we grew up in the right town or go to the right church. It's not about any of those things. It's about being connected to Jesus Christ by faith so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That promise from Joel 2.28 that in those days he will pour out his spirit 
That's all wrapped up in what Jesus did, becoming a curse on, in your place and in mine so that we might have the Holy Spirit pour into our lives, make us new creations, give us a heart of flesh, removing that heart of stone, so that we might love the Lord, not only be saved by faith, but live by faith. Brothers and sisters, as we struggle in life, reflect on God's work in your life. Recount the miraculous things he has done in your life. And reflect on God's word. Recount the scriptures. God has been consistent throughout all time in his love and in his acts of mercy and grace as he calls people from all tribes, tongues, and nations to himself by faith. He answers our suffering, our questioning, our doubts and fears with real evidence. Praise be the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that you do indeed meet us in our suffering, in our fear, in our doubts. You answer the false teachers. You draw us to yourself because you are powerful and you are good, because you are willing and you are able. And we ask now that as we continue in worship that our, hy our hymn of response will be one full of joy and hope knowing that you do not abandon us to our difficulties. May we honor you with our songs and with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.